Well, we are in Advent season. Advent season is all about reflecting upon and looking forward to the second coming of Jesus as we anticipate celebrating the first coming at Christmas time. And we are reflecting on that second coming through the book of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Paul's letter to the church in Thessaly. Uh, and this chapter is probably one of the most confusing chapters in the whole entire Bible. So here we go. So please pray, please pray for me. Let's pray as we come to the scriptures. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much we can read your word. We thank you that you are gracious, you are kind, and you are good, and you want to speak to us. You are the God of heaven and earth. You are a God who is bigger than anything else in all the creation, and you want to meet with us here tonight. And so, Father, we pray, give us hearts to hear your word, uh, ears that are open to hear it, and hearts that are open to the message that you have to teach us. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. So lately, I've been uh, thinking and interested in conspiracy theories. Turns out I've got a number of friends who actually believe in some conspiracy theories. And I won't mention the theories or the friends, for that matter, because um, I don't want to offend anyone here who also might hold to certain conspiracy theories. Uh, but it's got me really interested as to why people believe in conspiracy theories. And I thought I'd talk about two of the more crazier ones that I'm pretty sure no one here, uh, I hope no one here, believes in. So the first one is, have you heard of the flat earth theory? The theory that the earth is flat, Toby is a flat earther, apparently. Okay, very good. So the flat earth theory holds that the earth is a disk with, an, uh, with the Arctic Circle in the center and Antarctica as a 150-foot wall of ice around the rim. So it's a disk. It's not a sphere. It's a disk. NASA employees, they say, guard this ice wall to prevent people from climbing over and falling off the disk, off the earth. This is what they believe. Earth day and night cycles explained by positing the sun and the moon are spheres measuring 51 kilometers in diameter, so pretty small compared to what we say our sun is, and they're traveling at 4,000 kilometers an hour above the plane of the earth. You know gravity, that thing you were taught in high school or in primary school uh, that you know is real? No, apparently not real. It's an illusion. So Earth's <laughs> gravity is an illusion, they say. Objects do not accelerate downward. Instead, the disk of the Earth accelerates upward at 10 meters per second squared, driven up by a mysterious force called dark energy. It's very convenient. Uh, currently, there is a disagreement uh, among flat Earthers, though, uh, about whether or not Einstein's theory of relativity permits Earth to accelerate upward indefinitely without the planet surpassing, eventually, the speed of light. Now, I can't really speak into that conflict there, but this is crazy, right? People believe this. People actually believe that our Earth is flat. They say, hey, look, you can't see the curvature of the Earth. It's clearly flat. And they say that this is legit. It's a conspiracy. It's false to think that our world is a globe, our world is a sphere. And you might think, well, surely not. Well, 200 people every year, apparently, devote themselves, new devotees, to this conspiracy theory. Now, you might think, that's not many compared to the six or seven billion people on the planet. Uh, but seriously, 200 people is 200 too many, in my opinion, to think that the Earth is flat. But it gets crazier. There are actually crazier conspiracy theories out there. Have you guys heard of the reptilian overlord conspiracy? The lizards. Here we go. This is what they believe, okay? The reptilian conspiracy is a bizarre theory that says a large humanoid reptiles 
are taking over the world. According to the reptilian conspiracy, the human race has been infiltrated by reptilians, humanoid aliens, who can shapeshift and take on human form in order to manipulate human affairs, cause chaos, and create fear and hatred. This is my favorite part. They are fueled by negative emotions. It gives them strength. The reptilians are also called reptoids or lizard people or draconians and are said to live beneath the surface of the earth, emerging to shapeshift and take roles in world leadership. Now, I'm going to burst your bubble, unfortunately. Some of our favorite people are lizard people. Barack Obama, lizard person, reptilian. George W. Bush, reptilian. Yep, you guessed it. And the head of our church, the Queen of England herself, Queen Elizabeth II, yes, I'm afraid, she is also a reptilian. Apparently not, I didn't say that. Anyway, they are identified as lizard people, and apparently these conspiracy theorists have the proof. They have photographic evidence that these people are lizard people and are not truly human beings. Now, what has to happen in your life that you come to the point that you no longer believe the earth is round in a sphere and you believe that the world is secretly controlled by these shape-shifting creatures called reptilians. How do you come to that point? It's insane. Conspiracy theories, though, have the same narrative that runs throughout all of them, whether they're crazy or whether they're somewhat reasonable or somewhat believable. And the, the, the narrative is that there's an unknown force, an unknown power, unknown group of small people who have all the power, all the control, a secret cabal, uh, Illuminati, a bunch of lizard people, and they're all out to control us and to keep us blind to the truth of what they're trying to do. They use fear very well, playing on our vulnerabilities, playing on our insecurities. These conspiracy theorists make us doubt what seems to be reasonable in order to try and get us to reel us in and to believe their conspiracy. Their goal is to make us doubt, unsettle us, alarm us. And then once we are in that kind of moment, once we're in that situation, we are unsettled and doubting what, is rea what, what reality is, then we're susceptible to believing these theories. This is the art form of deception. And it works. It clearly works really well. And in our day and age where, where we are so skeptical of even just what people post on Facebook and the whole fake news thing, that, that therefore conspiracy theories have a new space in the marketplace of ideas as being somewhat reasonable. Because people find knowing the truth so hard to come by, so hard to see for themselves. When we come to the book of Thessalonians, chapter, uh, 2 Thessalonians, uh, we've already heard how crazy of a place it is. The Christians there have been persecuted immensely by the government, by the civil authorities. Paul himself, when he was there, setting up the church, was driven out. And now he writes into a situation where there seems to be a conspiracy going on. The conspiracy is that Jesus, the Lord, has already come back and gathered his followers. And this truth, well, this conspiracy, 
would have unsettled them, would have alarmed them because the, 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 what they would have believed was when Jesus comes back, he's come back to call people to himself, home again. The world would end as they know it. And so they're hearing this and thinking, what is going on here? Have we missed it? Have we been deceived? And they're hearing that apparently it's coming from Paul and his people. And so they're alarmed, they're unsettled, and they are doubting. Now this is actually a belief that has carried across 2,000 years. And there are people who still believe today that Jesus has already come back. And the reason why I know that is because a bunch of people have been trying to convince Josh here that he already has. A group called, what was it called? The World Mission Society Church of Christ believe that Jesus has already come back in the form of their leader, An Sung Hong. And although he died in 1985, they still believe that he was Jesus and he had come back. And a bunch of these people are at Macquarie University trying to convince Josh that Jesus has already come back. And so we've been meeting together, helping him be able to show it. No, he hasn't. Now you might think to yourself, that is just stupid. You might think, I'm not so naive to believe that Jesus has already come back. But if we're honest, we recognize that there are some things, some deceptions about life, about ourselves, even about God, that we do end up believing in. That we're not susceptible to believing in lies. Because it's easy to build a web of lies around us and to think that we believe in the truth when in fact perhaps we don't. When in fact perhaps actually we believe in a the version of the truth, my truth, our truth, but not the truth. But Paul urges us here, whether it's to do with something massive like when is Jesus coming back, or something really small and, and just simply, what do you believe about God or about yourself or about other people? Paul says in verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. And as he writes here to settle the issue when it comes to has Jesus come back, he also gives two things for us to reflect on tonight as to how is it that we don't get deceived? How is it that we can continue to hold on to the truth and not be deceived by lies, lies that seek to drag us away from God and believing in him and following him? So the first thing is that Paul reminds them of what they know. He gives that reminder in verses 3 to 6. And to the church in Thessaly, they might have been really like, oh, that makes sense now. But as we read this, it makes absolutely no sense what exactly that Paul is talking about here. So we read, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. What rebellion? Great. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. Who on earth is that? The man doomed to destruction. He will pose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship. So he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back. No, we don't, Paul. So that, that he may be revealed at the proper time. Great, so someone's going to reveal him. Maybe it's God, maybe it's Jesus. Wait, no, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. What is Paul talking about here? What exactly is he meaning here? Who is the man of lawlessness? What is this rebellion? Who is holding him back? And then who... And then who's going to take him out? And when is that going to happen exactly? All these things are very confusing. He writes, though, to a situation where they would have got it. 
as he says, don't you remember I taught you these things? And they would have been like, oh, yes, that's right. The man of lawlessness. That makes total sense. But to us, we go, what are you on about? Many scholars have guessed and made opinions. And most have said, look, we don't really know exactly what he's saying. But there are some things that we can know about what Paul is talking about here. You see, I think the way Paul is writing here is that he's writing as if he's looking through a telescope. Looking through a telescope at the distant future and, and looking at the future through the lens of present day events. And he's trying to say the future looks something like what we're seeing right now in the present. Particularly, that what makes me think that is particularly in verse 4. He says he will oppose, this is about the man of lawlessness, he will oppose and he will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now that actually almost happened. In AD 40, Gaius Caligula, the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time, attempted to build a statue of himself and put it in the Jewish temple. He was setting himself up as God in the Jewish temple. And if you know your Roman history, Roman emperors believed that they were gods. They believed and called themselves sons of God. Now what does this mean? Does this mean that Gaius Caligula was the man of lawlessness that Paul was talking about? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. Are there multiple man of lawlessness throughout history? Maybe, maybe not. We don't necessarily know. What we do know is that he, what he, the kind of person he looks like, he opposes God and he makes himself out to be God, but also in verse 9, his work is to deceive. We read in verse 9, when the lawless one will be revealed, sorry, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. His work is to deceive and do whatever he can to deceive and lead people away from God. But we also know from verse 7, it's not just a person or a, a, you know, a, a, a being at work here, but it's a powerful force at work as well. In verse 7, it's, we read, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. And so whilst we don't know exactly who this person is, or if there are multiple people who can hold on to this identity. We know whatever it is, it's a power, it's a force, perhaps a person at work, and their work is to deceive God's people. Their work is to seek to take away the truth from us so that we would walk away from God and not follow Him. And that's why Paul says, don't be deceived in any way. And that's why the first thing he says is, remember what I taught you. Remember, that's so important. The reason why it's so important is because this power, this person, this force, uses signs and wonders, verse 9, signs and wonders to serve the lie, displays of power. Now when I think of that, it takes me back to uh, God's people in, in exile, so not exile, under slavery in Egypt, in Exodus, and Moses and Aaron leading God's people, go to Pharaoh saying, let, you know, saying, let God's people go. And they, they, they perform miracles before Pharaoh to show that the God of Israel has power in Egypt. But Aaron throws his staff from the ground and it turns into a snake. What happens next? 
Pharaoh calls his magicians and by their secret arts and powers, they also create snakes out of thin air. Two, in fact. When Aaron and Moses, by the power of God, turn the Nile into blood, Pharaoh calls his magicians once more and they also turn the Nile into blood by their power and secret arts. When they send frogs and locusts, again by God's power, once more, Pharaoh calls his magicians and they do exactly the same thing by their power and their sorcery. Not tricks, true power. Power to deceive. Power to try and lead Pharaoh away from believing that the God of Israel, the Hebrew God, has power in the land of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 18, as God's people are going to head into the land, the land that was promised to them, God says to them, don't be like the Canaanites who occupied this land, performing sorcery and witchcraft, communicating with the dead. The reason why he says don't do it is not because it doesn't work. Let me say that again. The reason why he says don't do this, don't communicate with the dead, is not because it doesn't work but because it's evil and leads you away from God and following what is good and right with Him. That is the power that is still at work in our world today. And that power's desire, that power's goal is to deceive us, to lead us away from the truth of God so that we would no longer follow Him and follow Him in Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul says, remember what you know. Remember what you have heard because that is, is the truth. This force is at work to deceive you. Don't give in to it. This force will try and convince you that you are wrong. This force will try and convince you that God is not worth following. He will try and use fear and doubt. He will try and alarm you and unsettle you, but you must stand firm and remember what God, what I've taught you about God in Jesus Christ. That's why we come here every single week. We come here to remember. Remember what God has done for us in Jesus, to remember who he is and to go out into the world to live for him and to follow him, knowing that he is the truth. And without him, we can't live. That's the first thing that Paul says. We must remember, remember what God has done for us, remember who he is. And before I move on, I just want to ask the question, how are you going and doing that in your own daily walk with Jesus? Are you reading the Word and praying? Are you doing it with your spouse, your boyfriend, girlfriend, your friends, your, your growth group? Are you committed to these things because you know how important it is to read God's Word with other people, to read God's Word and to know and to stay on that narrow path with Him? Reading it, even though you might not be thinking, I'm getting a lot out of it this morning, but reading it, knowing that it's the right thing, and that's where truth is found, and I do not want to be deceived by the evil one. Remembering is so important, but it's not just about what you remember, it's not about what you know, it also has to do with what you love. The second thing that Paul says is love the truth. We see in that in verse 10. Um, he will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You see, conspiracy theorists will try and sell you their theory on, on the basis of which they love the truth. 
They're saying it's all about having you know, the system back, peel away. It's all about seeing it for what it really is and knowing the truth, and the truth will set you free. But the thing is, is that they, their love for the truth is not so true at all because it's at the expense of any other reasonable explanation of the truth. And they use fear to make you think that you are believing a lie if you don't believe in their theory at all. Now, I don't think fear is always a bad thing when it comes to seeking to know the truth. We, our state at the moment is currently on fire with so many bushfires. I'm sure so many RFS firefighter volunteers and staff have been going around to people's houses and saying to them, knock, knock, if you don't get out of your house right now, it will burn down and you with it. You've got to leave right now to save your life. That is a good use of fear to tell the truth. It's a good use of fear because it's, it's kind of, you know, everyone else is experiencing the same thing as well. It's a reasonable explanation of people's experience around them. If they don't leave, they will die and their house, in their houses is burning up. But these conspiracy theorists they use fear, but not in a way that is reasonable, not in a way that is normal to everyone else's experience. But when it comes to loving the truth, we love the truth even when we're challenged, even when it's hard, even when it's not convenient to us or it suits us. We stay firm in it. Not moved, generated by fear, but rather by the fact that it is the truth and we remember it. So when people come up to us and say, how can you believe in that God, the Bible, is a genocidal maniac? He kills women and children. How can you believe in that God? Or when people say to you, how can you believe in a God that hates my relationship between my, my, my partner because I'm gay? How can you believe in that God? Or how can you believe in God at all? You know, science explains everything. You can know what is the true through science. How can you believe in a God that made everything? You just don't know what to believe. You just don't know enough. The eye, your eyes aren't open. The temptation at times is to let fear sink in, to unsettle you, to alarm you, to open you up in a way that you begin to question God himself and whether or not he's actually good. But Paul says, if you love the truth, you will stick at it even when it's really hard. And you'll work through it to see how it is that you can reconcile these questions with what you know about God in the Bible. But loving the truth is not just simply about sticking at it. Sometimes loving the truth is acknowledging when you don't know the whole truth. It's acknowledging the fact that sometimes we don't know all there is to know when it comes to the truth. When we don't know everything there is to know about God, we don't know everything is to know about ourselves or we don't know everything is to know about those around us, someone else in our life. This is something that we find difficult to acknowledge, to admit that sometimes we, we actually don't know the truth. We don't often question ourselves and reflect, actually, is, is my assumption, my idea of who that person is, is that actually correct? We don't often reflect in questioning, actually, do I have the right view of God in this passage here in Scripture? We are very quick to believe lies about ourselves, about what people think of us, instead of going to God and actually reflecting deeply, who am I before Him? We're not very good at 
being honest and going, actually, you know what? I don't know the whole truth. Do we explore our hearts and our minds and go, actually, God, help me to understand does what I think, does what I believe, is that actually the truth about you, about someone else, or about myself? One of the greatest prayers in the Psalms comes from Psalm 139, and he says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Do we pray that prayer often? I think it's, it's so much easier to jump to conclusions, to jump to different conclusions about God, about people, about ourselves, but we're not very quick to actually question our own reality and question whether or not we've got it right. But the person who does do that, they are someone who loves the truth. They are someone who recognizes that they don't always know it. And is that what it means to be a Christian? Isn't that what it means to know Jesus? We are those who were once blind, but now we can see. Don't we recognize that as Christians, we pray in that Lord's Prayer, deliver me from the power of the evil one. The evil one is at work to try and take us away from the truth. And the way he will often do that is by setting up half-truths for us to believe instead about God, about other people, about ourselves. Do we actually believe when we're praying that, that what we're praying for is for God to fill our hearts and our minds to help us to see the truth about Him and about ourselves? Because that's what we're doing. That's what we need to do if we want to be those who aren't deceived. We ought to be those who love the truth. Those who love the truth don't become alarmed and unsettled when they're challenged or when they're corrected, they instead welcome it. They turn to the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. They trust in Jesus. Even though they don't know the whole truth and everything, they trust that Jesus does, and following him, they will be in a good place. Or as Paul says, those who love the truth are those who are saved because their hope is in Jesus. Who is the truth? Those who don't love the truth are those who continue to build up web of lies around them. They're not interested in knowing the truth. They're only interested in what is convenient for them to believe and to trust in. And we hear that such a mentality, such a posture is wicked. And God judges that by handing them over to their blindness and saying, fine, you don't want to believe in the truth, you don't want to love the truth, I'll, let, I'll give you blindness so you never see it. We read that in verse 10. Uh, sorry, verse 11. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth about, but have delighted in wickedness. That's a heavy word, isn't it? It kind of reminds me of what happened to Pharaoh himself. We read after all the being convinced by his magicians that his heart was hardened. He wasn't interested in hearing or believing that the God, the God of Israel, God of the Hebrews, had power in his land. And so because he wasn't interested in believing that truth, God said, well, fine, I'm going to harden your heart towards me and you will be judged. 
This is why this message is so urgent for us here. We've got to check ourselves. We've got to have a reality check right now. Are we those who truly love the truth? Or are we those who are walking in wicked ways, seeking to build lies, half-truths, to what is convenient for us? Are we constantly unsettled and alarmed and therefore believing whatever is convenient, whatever won't get us in trouble? Because if we love the truth, we're not going to be concerned about that. We're going to be concerned about the truth, of who God is and what He's done for us. And the reason why we are concerned about loving the truth, and the reason why we want to stand firm and remember it is because Jesus is coming back. He is returning. And that is the truth that we need to hear. It was most certainly the truth that the church in Thessaly needed to hear as well. And we read in verse 8 that when he comes, the lawless one, the power of lawlessness, the power of deception will be re- exposed for what it is. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. It's so interesting that he uses that term, breath of his mouth. It's as if to say that when Jesus comes, the way in which he will conquer and destroy the lawless one, the power of lawlessness, is through the truth of his word over and against the lies and deception of the words of the lawless one. And with him, all wickedness, all lies, all deception will be exposed and seen for what it is, and it will be judged. And on on that day, those who love the truth, it will be a joyful day because they will be vindicated. They will be seen as in being in the right. But those who do not love the truth, who allow the lies to be created around them and want them to feel safe and secure, they will also not feel so safe and secure and they will be exposed for who they are. It's a challenging word to hear. It's hard to hear. But Paul is saying this because he wants us not to be deceived. This is the truth. We must be those who remember. We must be those who love the truth. Does that describe you? Are you someone who loves the truth? Are you slow to accuse people of wrongdoing or hurting them, reflecting on the fact that actually maybe, maybe I've got it wrong? Are you quick to, or you know, slow to hold to your own interpretation of the Scriptures, maybe realizing that someone else might have had a better and in fact a correct interpretation over you? Are you slow to believe the lies of the evil one in your heart, in your life, that says you are this person? knowing actually who God is and who he's made you to be. Because those lies are there to lead you away from God. Does that describe you? I want us to reflect on that for a moment. But the way we're going to do that is we're going to pray this prayer together. Psalm 139. I want you all to stand up as the band comes. This prayer is going to be on the screen. I want you to pray it with me. This prayer is about actually being humble before God and recognizing the fact that we are fallen people. We are people who are not perfect. We are people who are broken. We are people who often at times are more prone to manipulating the truth than pursuing it. And so we humbly come before God and recognize, God, we can't see the error of our ways on our own. We need your help to help us because we want to be those people who love the truth. We want to be those people who seek 
the truth always, even when it's not convenient, even when it's not good for us in a worldly sense, but it's good for us in an eternal sense. So that, that's going to come on the screen now. Not there, is it? I have to edit it. That's sad. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say the prayer, word, like a couple of phrases, and you're going to repeat after me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen.